I am so pleased to be here and uh, want to just take, take a second to shout out to the organizers for having put together a fascinating, amazing... Um, sort of scholarship, activism, um, social justice. I mean, these are sort of themes that kind of run through all of our work and, and, um, as feminists, and it's wonderful when there are opportunities when they can all come together um, as they have at this great conference. Um, our panel is sort of interested in considering kind of the dilemmas of what might be considered activist scholarship, especially as it relates to what, we, uh, what our debt might be to the communities that we are engaged in, and also our own investment in the social change work um, that might come out of activist scholarship. And so I want to start, before I introduce our panelists, with sort of troubling some of the terms that are connected with the theme that we came up with. And one is sort of troubling the notion of community, what counts as community, who constitutes our community, how do we define that, what kind of borders inherently get constructed once we start defining our community, um, which is our, our sort of first thing we trouble as we begin to do, you know, this kind of engagement that hopefully is about social change, um, but we're always at the same time setting up some boundaries as who's in or who's out or on whose behalf um, is this work constituted. Secondly, I want to trouble the notion of scholarship. Um, which is also something that's sort of inherent in what's, what's been happening in the last two days. Um, what counts as knowledge? Who gets to produce it? In whose interest is knowledge generated? Um, for what purposes? And how can we trouble a kind of fixedness of a knowledge that is embedded in the community as well as in the academy so that we don't think we know what that is in advance, so that we're open to new ways of knowing, and so that activism itself is um, able to contribute, as we know from the work being done on praxis in a broader sense, um, to the work in the academy. So we're troubling lots of boundaries um, today, as, as, I, as I believe has really been happening this, this, the last two days. Um, so without further ado, um, we have a variety of interests coming together, and you'll see from the panelists, they bring uh, and I think this is kind of a theme that is very, very um, common <laughs> within feminist work. People bring their own passions, their own experiences, their own interests into the work they do, which I think, in my view, deepens the work. Um, so you're going to hear about the kind of passions that, are, that, that brought these five scholars to the work they do and um, the activist um, efforts that extend from it. Um, so we're going to go, I think, in the order of at least the way we presented it. <laughs> and I'm not sure if it's the same as what's in the program. So our first presenter will be um, Roberta um, Vallion, who is um, assistant professor at St. John's University. Um, she has, um, let me see if I can give you a, a brief overview, but she is, has an amazing background um, in terms of both her activism and her personal uh, history. Um, Roberta was born during the last a military regime in Argentina. Since her early years, she has been interested in understanding and debunking social inequalities within and beyond borders. Um, she has a background both in political science and international relations, as well as expertise in Latin America and Latin American immigrants, um, which has shaped her, her work. She has this amazing book, uh, which she'll talk a little bit about, or maybe more than a little, about violence against Latino immigrants. And, you know, when I first saw this, the manuscript that, that 
was to become this book, I was really excited about that effort to sort of bring together sort of different kinds of social justice issues and to make visible um, the concerns of, of um, primarily undocumented um, women um, in terms of issues of violence. So Roberta will be our first um, pre presenter. Second, Jennifer Rogers, who's an assistant professor at Long Island University. Um, Jennifer's history is one that, that I share with her a little bit. She was one of my undergraduate students back at the University of California at Irvine. And I bring that up because she was, she and her, a colleague of hers were like the single activist core of women's studies many, many years ago and was a key contributor to a book that I put together called Teaching Feminist Activism, um, which is kind of an illustration of the way I think you know, we have to understand activism as both through our pedagogy uh, in terms of how it helps empower students, but also that the students we get often in, in women's studies um, classes are ones that are already activated. <laughs> and I think they keep us, uh, as I'm sure I, I envision all of you um, who are in the undergraduate program here at Barnard <laughs> are doing for Barnard, <laughs> keep, us, keep us honest and active and current. Um, now, Jennifer. Since, since her undergraduate background uh, included women's studies, uh, she, she went from her undergrad to UC Santa Barbara and where she studied both undergrad, uh, both women's studies and sociology. And um, she, her, her areas of research are really fascinating in terms of the intersection, race, class, gender, but also bringing in environment and technology and issues of globalization. Her dissertation analyzes maize in Mexico, free trade, bioengineering gender in indigenous cultures. And as a postdoc sc uh, scholar, she worked at the Center for Nanotechnology and Society, which is really another fascinating aspect of her, her history. And so she'll be telling us a little bit more about her, um, her concerns as it relates to um, activist scholarship. Uh, Nikki McGarry is a PhD student in sociology at the University of uh, Connecticut. She is uh, one of our award-winning teachers, and that's the other thing that I have to mention about the phenomenal um, scholars I've worked with in the Women's Studies program. They have a passion for teaching, and I like to think about that in connection with activism. Um, her research focuses on the complex relationship between pregnant minors in the state, paying particular attention to the regulation of female adolescent sexuality. She is a, um, a recent recipient of one of our teaching awards, and is a longtime activist for reproductive rights and a participant in the struggle against gendered violence. Next is Barbara Gurr. And I could probably go ad lib off, but I know that's going to take me way off the page. Um, Barbara Gurr is, a, <laughs> Gurr is a new assistant professor in residence at the University of California. I mean, oh, see, I do this all the time. Um, harking back to those beautiful Southern California days, but, but it's not too bad today. Uh, <laughs> University of Connecticut, where she completed her PhD with a, a strong emphasis in um, feminist studies. Um, she is the former director of women's studies at Southern Connecticut State University and the former assistant director of women's studies at the University of Connecticut. Um, her dissertation utilized a reproductive justice pr perspective to examine the consequences of locating native women's health care in a federal agency, the Indian Health Service. Her current research considers family identity tasks for queer families with young transgender children. And her, our last presenter is Kathleen Cole. And Kathleen is a cultural anthropologist whose research focuses on issues of immigration, gender, and cultural citizenship in the U.S. 
Her 2010 book, Remaking Citizenship, Latina Immigrants in New American Politics, is an ethnographic study of women's lives and the activism of Mujeres Unidas y Activas in San Francisco. She currently lectures in anthropology, Chicano studies, and feminist studies in Stanford. And I've asked the panelists to try to keep their um, presentations uh, focused maybe 10 minutes. So we will have time, hopefully, to engage in a more um, collaborative conversation about these important issues. Just to make sure that I was going to be under 10 minutes, I didn't prepare the whole writing uh, on this. Um, so I've been working on the issue of violence against Latina immigrants now since 2004. So I feel a veteran on this already. Um, and I did my most of my work in Texas in a nonprofit organization that was providing legal services for free for poor immigrants. Most of them were undocumented, but some of them were not. And I worked specifically in a program as a volunteer, in a program that assisted these um, immigrants who were survivors of intimate partner violence in the process of getting their citizenship and, and stabilize their immigration status that they could do through the Violence Against Women Act. Um, this legislation allows immigrant women in particular to stabilize their immigration status without the sponsorship of the abusive spouse, which is usually the way in which you get your documented status if you get married to a United States citizen. So I work with this program uh, in this organization with um, for, specifically for this program for two years, and I looked into how was it for these Latina immigrants to go through the process of obtaining their citizenship papers. And I got into this um, work because I am Latina, I am an immigrant, I, was also, I am also a survivor of intimate partner violence, and I found it as a person who was coming from a country that did not have legislation on gender violence, I was pretty fascinating to have legislation that was protecting survivors of intimate partner violence, specifically within the, the immigrant community, that I learned were, would be, uh, were more vulnerable to particular issues, right? So their immigration status made them more vulnerable to violence, their lower uh, socioeconomic status, unstable jobs, etc., etc. So I wanted to do this work for these personal and political reasons, and also because, I guess, uh, my history in Argentina and my, my, my I guess, I, my academic background, never really saw two separate things between research and politics, right? There's, uh, for me, there's no way that I could envision myself doing any kind of research that didn't have anything to do with my politics and my political activism. So I found this uh, kind of an ideal place where to develop my research. And so I got into this work with a lot of passion, as you were saying, and also with a lot of idealism, because I was amazed at the fact that there were these kinds of laws and these kind of uh, organizations providing services for, for women who could not afford, right, a lawyer or could not afford any kind of other services because of the, the poor situation they were living in. And one of the main problems that I encountered as I was going through this research and this activist research pro project was to realize that things were not so great, <laughs> right? And to work through these problems together with the people in this nonprofit organization where I also found very 
strong obstacles to try to address change and to try to deal with these issues. So just to give you an idea, this organization um, that I called ORA um, was the only organization in Texas that provided this kind of services for free um, that was not uh, involved or engaged uh, in any kind of religious um, organization, right? And it was also the only one that was providing all these kinds of services to this particular group of people, which you can already think that doesn't make too much sense since there's a very large number of undocumented immigrants in Texas that may need these kinds of services. So there's kind of two or three organizations, and that's the end. Um, there, there were very significant organizations, too, because they had begun as a group of activist lawyers that were pushing for policy change and were very radical in the way they dealt with how to provide services, but also how to engage in, in, in trying to address all of these injustices that were embedded in these institutional structures, right? So I also had this history, in, uh, knew this history about the organization and was very happy to be involved in, in this one organization. So as I moved forward in my work as that I was doing, like I would um, meet with the Latina immigrants and work with them to prepare their application for immigration, um, which included their stories of migration and their stories of abuse that they had gone through. I started to find all these obstacles that are still on the way for them to access the rights they're entitled to because of the Violence Against Women Act. So. Some of the obstacles are coming from the fact that the Violence Against Women Act, the, the immigration provisions within the Violence Against Women Act are mirroring the immigration system, family-based immigration system altogether. So this system has all these inherited um, discrimi discriminatory patterns where racial and ethnic parameters come in, gender uh, issues come in, and, and also social class matters come in. So, a lot of the problems that I found in that sense made it very clear that even if the Violence Against Women Act were, was opening the doors for these better immigrants, at the same time, they were opening the doors to certain better immigrants, right, and in different ways. So, for example, one of the main things that, um, that a better woman had to prove and show was that she was married to a citizen, right, or to a legal permanent resident in the U.S. So there were all these legacies of having uh, marriage as one of the main, I guess, like keys to be able to open the door to citizenship, for instance, right? Then there were issues related to class, so how to go through the process, right, and the kinds of resources that you needed, even if you were getting legal services for free, made the most underprivileged women unable to, to get through, right? And then you also had the racial and ethnic barriers that were mostly related with, um, to the point where the better immigrant who was married to a citizen had a very certain and short path to obtaining their immigration status, or to fixing their immigration status. But then if this were the better woman was married with a legal permanent resident, then the story was different. If she was married with an undocumented immigrant, then also the path was also very difficult to get through. So there were all these formal ways in which immigrants were not just able to get their paperwork done. But at the same time, these were just inherited from the law. So the people in the nonprofit organization felt, right, that there was not really much that could be done about it, and at least there were some ways that you could help these women. 
Now, the other part of it was that when I was working there, I found all these other obstacles that I called informal obstacles that were how these workers at the nonprofit organization had developed this kind of uh, profile of the ideal client where they would help better, right? And they would be very helpful with certain immigrants, but not with all of them. So, for example, immigrants, uh, better immigrant women who were... Um, who cried too much were kind of pushed down the pile because they would make the appointments uh, too long to handle, right, or too heavy to deal with, right? Or immigrants who came with their children and the children would be maybe crying or, or getting, you know, uh, rowdy a little bit after a couple of, you know, after a while of being there, they would also be considered like non-ideal. So there were all these other ways in which the, the non-profit workers were creating all these barriers that would, that would, again, prevent like the most destitute immigrants to get access, right, to access the citizenship that they were entitled to. So as I saw this, and part of my, how many minutes? Two minutes. As I saw this, I, uh, and as an activist researcher, I brought this up, right, to, to the organization also while I was doing my research and then after uh, with the expectation that, that a little bit of fear of, of listening to what they had to say about my, I guess, like my critical view of what was happening, but also with the expectation that they would be interested in doing something about it, right? And this was one of the main challenges, to see that they were not really interested in doing anything to change their practices. Even if they recognized that they were there and that they were problematic, they, they felt that this was just kind of, well, something that was too bad and sad, but not necessarily something that they had to do anything for. And one of the ways I dealt, I guess, I, with, with the frustration of this, right, um, was to open up what I, in a way like the front of action and, and start talking to other organizations, right, and, and trying to make this a point of thinking of how when nonprofit organizers are providing their services, maybe enacting these other kinds of obstacles that in the end prevent the most underprivileged Latina immigrants or immigrants in general to get the rights they're entitled to. So. Uh, I'm going to go back a few years to uh, 2006, back when I uh, was a younger grad, a grad student, just excited to get out and start into the field. And um, I went to Oaxaca, Mexico, which is in southern, southern Mexico. And um, I spent a year there uh, for my first trip interviewing corn farmers, NGOs, activists. I attended rallies and corn festivals. And um, I also got swept up in political clashes, getting tear gassed along with the people that I was studying and speaking to. And I went into that project knowing that I wanted to keep track of uh, of my work through a feminist, reflexive lens. I wanted to highlight the words of those whom I studied and understand at all times that I was an outsider in these spaces. But I wasn't quite prepared for the 2006 Oaxacan Uprising, for how this event would impact my research, my daily life, and how it would inspire me to think critically about that giving, giving back aspect of feminist methodology. So I'm going to briefly tell you about my field site, but what I want to argue here is that there is a significant need for activist scholars and scholars studying activism to examine their experiences through a feminist lens in order to highlight how identity impacts how we negotiate our field sites, particularly dangerous spaces. 
And um, this is really important for especially fields in sociology and anthropology who could be you know, learning from that feminist lens as well. And I also recognize that there's many different, this word dangerous spaces, this is, you know, really complex and this involves a lot of places and it can mean physical or mental. Um, and I look particularly here with, you know, my example with um, uh, this movement of being part of a social movement. And um, so two weeks after I arrived in October 2006, the Oaxacan uh, movement, or also called the Popular Assembly of the Peoples of Oaxaca, called APO for short, became increasingly violent because the federal government sent in troops to squash the uh, people in the Zocalo who were doing a sit-in and started as a teacher's movement, a strike, and it became, because of the, that um, repression from the government, it became a popular uprising against the governor. Millions of people came out in protest, and this became, you know, it was uh, sit-in for months and months, and after I, and it had started in April, by the time I got there in October, um, it became much, it just became a whole nother beast. And it actually then restricted my movements. I came there thinking, I'm going to go now to talk to some corn farmers and go, you know, to neighboring areas. And then I realized, no, I can't because there's barricades. I, my movement's restricted. Um, I had to start re understanding the movement a little bit. I had to understand how this movement was going to impact my research. But I quickly realized that it was quite intertwined with my research on corn and biodiversity because that's exactly what many of the people in the movement were talking about, land rights, indigenous rights, things like that. So I um, decided to study them, <laughs> at least in the beginning. So as a white feminist researcher from the U.S. doing research in Mexico, it's important to ask questions from a feminist methodological point of view and make an honest, reflexive study of the impact of my identity on my research from method to analysis. So for example, I was consistently viewed as an outsider. And for those who assumed I might have been from Latin American origin, my accent and imperfect Spanish usually identified me as otherwise. And in my field site, relationships of domination and subordination are heightened because of the historical implications of a white researcher from a Western country studying indigenous people in a developing country. Some researchers have found that people in a politically sensitive situation seek out and want the presence of a researcher because they can provide them with an audience and a voice. There, this was my experience with the women of uh, one group called Como. And this was a women's organization connected to Oppo. And they were working within it, alongside it, and critiquing Oppo um, as women part of the movement trying to get more of a say for women's voices and bring attention to indigenous women's issues. But um, they, after you know, initial short dialogue in November, two of them sought me out later in March 2007. Um, and they came to me and they told me, um, oh, we remember you. Please come. We're doing a week-long set of events. We want you to participate. We want you to document what we're doing. And we'd actually like to, um, you to tell people at your school what we're doing. We want you to share this information. We talked about designing a website. They wanted advice on that. It ended up coming down to um, I had started a blog when I first got there for reasons I'll, I'll talk about in a few minutes. And so I started putting their stories, um, their events, from their perspective on my blog, along with photos, and um, because a lot of this information just wasn't out there. But it also meant I started walking a thin line between supporter, participant, and observer. 
And as if I would tell them that, you know, when I first met them, I said, I'm a fellow fe uh, female activist. I'm an activist on my campus. I'm interested in feminism and women's issues. And they connected to that and, want, and, and saw me as somebody that perhaps they shared the same community, but at the same time was an outsider. Um, but this also brings me to another aspect of doing this kind of research. It made me think about impression manage management. How was I presenting myself to them? So I came to think of it as like balancing plates on a stick, on sticks. Each plate is a different part of the field site, rep representing a different group of people who at any moment may question the researcher's identity and legitimate access. To negotiate these plates, honesty and sometimes the ability to show proof are a key part of the researcher's toolkit. So sometimes I would find it perfectly fine to show maybe my student body card when I was being a graduate student. And many people were completely content with that. But then other times I felt pressure that I needed to show other forms of identification. Um, and this is because foreign researchers studying a social movement are often read in three different ways. A tourist, a reporter, or a potential threat, like a spy. And when I was read as a tourist, I was granted some access to physical spaces without the threat of checkpoints and bag searches. So when the federal police came in and kicked people out of the Zocalo, they put up a barricade around it themselves and said, now no longer can the protesters come in. But that also meant, you know, people came in, they had their bags searched. When I walked up to go through the narrow passages, they just let me walk right through. And so I assumed that quite likely this was a reaction to my skin color and assumption that I was a tourist. Let one of the few tourists walk through and go to the stores, please. You know, it was just easy, go through. Um, and I was ignored. But then all the other times being a tour, so-called tourist was a hindrance. So when I actually tried to gain legitimacy, which was a constant thing, always getting access over and over again, um, I would be you know, told, but aren't you just a tourist? What? What, what do you want to do here? And even after um, in one moment when I was speaking to somebody who was an informant and I thought becoming a friend, for an hour we talked about Marxism, debated it. And then I said, well, can I come to this radio interview that you're going to be putting on? And he said, why, why do you care? Aren't you just like a tourist? Like, Wait, you know everything I'm doing. I don't understand what. And I also realized that this was, um, uh, I think, about gender, too, at that moment. And, and I'll come out and talk about that a little bit uh, later as well. And when I was read as a reporter, this was really commonly happened. Even when I had a name tag at some of the, the oppo meetings that said otherwise, they, people would still say, oh, you're a reporter. That's what the, the assumption was. And this gave me equal access and perhaps didn't change anything, but I was concerned about being misread in that way and what that meant for my research. And finally, researchers in risk-saturated risk field sites might be read as a potential threat. And... Um, and this can happen, uh, Warren and Hackney about explain this really well, that being a woman in the field can sometimes make the female investigator invisible and other times do the opposite. And because if uh, your gender doesn't fit the norm of who's normally in that space, then you can be read as potential threat or be questioned. And I had this also happen um, when I found myself in a dangerous location and um, outside the university where the uh, students had taken over the university. And I, you know, this guard came out, a young student, and he was like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And this was a moment when I needed to show real identification, multiple forms of identification, and said, 
oh, but by the way, I'm also, you know, activist from the U.S., and I'm writing about what you're doing, and I completely support you. And then his mood changed, and suddenly he was concerned for my safety um, and was telling me, well, where I needed to go and how um, there was potential threat down the street. And he suddenly started protecting me, um, which was also interesting. And... And this also brings me to thinking about how all of this can, you know, we think about physical spaces and we're writing about it, we also need to analyze it just also on an emotional level as well. And some of these dangerous spaces definitely were impacted by, um, impacting me when I would, I, there was a key moment, October 27th, when a New York Indie Media reporter, Bradley Will, was killed. And um, the next day I saw that he was shot in the newspaper and I just saw him the day before at a barricade. So there's one aspect is that what does this mean for my own research? But on top of it, it suddenly meant I got phone calls and emails from everybody I knew in the U.S. saying, what are you doing there? Wait, you're in Oaxaca? What? And my committee remembered what was going on. And on top of it, um, this also is what inspired me to really want to make sure I put out some information, had the blog, because on both sides there was false information. People were supporting it. On my campus were, you know, putting together, um, the student body wanted to say, write a pro-oppo statement um, again, and against the governor of Oaxaca, but at the same time they were putting out information saying that 9,000 federal police were coming in and hurting people who were completely, you know, you know could not defend themselves. In reality, there's 4,500 federal police and, you know, there were these clashes, but it, sensationalizing it wasn't really helping the situation either. So that's why I had the blog, which was uh, jennifer.coolmojo.net, and I found that my photos were actually more popular than my actual blog, I think, and it's what only really remains on this site right now. Um, so I, just to end, I, I'm talking about this stuff not as a war story, which is, I think, kind of the history of uh, we've seen in anthropology to tell a war story, but I think we really, if we can be more analytical, um, and bring in this feminist lens, uh, we can offer each other who are in these spaces some real ways of understanding how to um, work our way in it and also what it means for that giving back aspect, which I'm still trying to work through. And I feel in some ways I failed and in some ways I did help. So now I'm going to shift gears a little bit and, and focus on the community as classroom. Um, I have taught a variety of classes at the University of Connecticut and, and neighboring institutions, mostly women's studies, um, sociology, anthropology, human rights. And I think it's important to mention that it is interdisciplinary in a lot of ways um, because sometimes I'll cater how I frame things depending on the context of the class. Um, the title of, of my speech today is Praxising Feminist Pedagogy, Public Feminism Meets the Ivory Tower. And I prepared this long thing explaining ivory tower and praxis and pedagogy, but bottom line is, you know, feminist pedagogy and feminist praxis are the forms of intervention into maintaining the ivory tower as a sort of disconnect from real life, right? Um, and this has been especially true for me in teaching about violence against women. And I just want to share a few stats with you. Um, one in four women has experienced intimate partner violence in her lifetime. Each day, approximately one man and three women are killed by their intimate partners each day. One in six women experience completed or attempted rape in their lifetime. One in five women college, one in five women college st 
I'm sorry, women of college age experience completed or attempted rape during their college years, and the FBI estimates that only 37% of all rapes are reported to the police. One out of any, uh, one out of 20 rapists will ever spend a day in jail. Okay. So in thinking about um, public feminism, feminist pedagogy and praxis, I am reminded of the feminist saying the personal is political, but I think it's also really important to say the personal is educational as well. So the types of students that I teach really range depending on if I'm teaching an intro class or a higher division women in violence class. And I usually do incorporate the topic of gendered violence into all classes that I teach in, in one way or another. But the two classes that I really talk the most about um, women in violence or gendered violence um, include the intro class of gender in everyday life and also the higher division women in violence class. And of course, that's more detailed and expansive than the intro class. And over the past four years of teaching about gendered violence, I've encountered multiple challenges. Um, and there are a variety of challenges, but I'm only going to focus on four that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And these are student-centered challenges as opposed to content challenges. Okay. So um, one challenge is reaching the wide range of students that have, you know, so much knowledge about violence prior to the class, whether it be from personal experience or witnessing violence, um, to people who get a lot of their or most of their information about violence against women or sexual violence from Law and Order SVU, um, and you know, people who don't understand the idea that a sex worker can in fact be raped. Um, so you have a lot of different perspectives and experience or um, ideas about violence even before stepping into the classroom. And so one of the challenges to speaking to all of those. A second challenge is in creating a safe space for the survivors that are no doubt in the classroom. I mean, statistically speaking, there are some. Um, and that is especially difficult. It, it's <laughs> difficult in a variety of ways. I mean, you can't talk about gendered violence without talking about violence, right? And so one of the ways, there's a lot of safety, I think, in talking about statistics, right? So there's a lot of safety in talking about statistics, providing information, speaking theoretically about structural violence, speaking um, theoretically about these trends or patterns that we can see, um, but the danger in that is that some personal stories and very real trauma can, can easily get lost in those statistics. Um, and so one way that I sort of navigate that particular challenge is in presenting or complementing the theoretical research um, or texts in the class with personal narratives, um, published personal narratives. Um, not mine, but for example, memory monologue, written a prayer, um, things like that. So a third challenge, and this is particularly fascinating to me as I was thinking about it, uh, a third challenge is really making the people who are privileged by this system of violence against women comfortable enough in the classroom so that they can actually learn something, right? And I think that a lot of that stems from perhaps my own almost imposter syndrome of, of being a feminist within a patriarchal institution, right? Um, and you don't want to be too feminist 
to be taken seriously, right? And, and depending, and I personally, if I can speak completely honestly, honestly, have cloaked my feminism under the language of critical sociology more than once. Um, and, and so I think that depending, again, on the classroom and the context, how exactly I, I meet that challenge is, is dependent. Um, the fourth challenge that I'm going to focus on here mostly is outside of the classroom. It's when survivors of violence come to me um, to share their stories. And this is sometimes after class. This is sometimes um, in my office. This is sometimes through email. But it always happens. I would say almost every semester I have five or six students who approach me. And those are the ones who approach me, right? Um, so I, I actually have two letters that I'm going to share with you um, today with permission from, from those students. It was really hard for me to pull out excerpts. So what I've done is the first letter I'm going to read in its entirety. It's not too long. The second letter, which was very long, I'm, I'm just going to read the first part. Oh. I, I do want to pause for a moment and say that this moment right now is sort of reflective of one of the challenges I was talking about before because you, in talking about violence with an audience where no doubt there are survivor, survivors of violence um, in this very room. So do take care of yourself. And also, you know, I was not anticipating reading aloud and having my voice go outside. And this is particularly interesting to me, too, because how do you create a safe space if my voice is traveling outside? This is very strange. Okay. Um, so this is one student. This week was, really hard, was a really hard week for me in class. My first boyfriend raped me twice a little over two years ago. The first time, he made me have sex with him, even though I said no. The second time, he made, he made me give him a blowjob, even though I said no. Both times, he made me feel guilty and like it was no big deal. Since that happened, I've gone back and forth between convincing myself it wasn't rape or that it was. It wasn't violent. He didn't hurt me. It wasn't like the rape's on TV, so how could it be rape? This class and my women in violence class have shown me that it was rape and that I'm definitely not the only girl who was raped by her boyfriend but doesn't believe it's rape. My second boyfriend was controlling and abusive, although never physically. After going through all of the red flags today, I realized just how bad the relationship could have been if I didn't get out. I didn't see any of the signs at the time. My mother tried pointing it out to me, but I didn't believe her. I can now see the cycle of violence in this relationship, and I'm grateful that I was able to get out. It's been difficult for me to come to terms with all of this. While I would go back and forth between seeing the truth behind it and claiming it isn't true and it wouldn't happen to me, it's always been in the back of my head that I was raped and abused by men I thought loved me. I haven't had a boyfriend other than these two, and I'm terrified that I'm going to keep going back to, to the same kind of guys and be in the same types of relationships. I've only told a couple of people the truth about my relationships, and no one knows the full story of any of this. I think that every woman needs to hear the truth about rape and abuse, because the media has such an inaccurate portrayal of both. Thank you for helping me see the truth. The next letter I'm going to read is, was particularly powerful for me in the way that it was presented. A student asked to speak with me after class, and I thought it was about a grade or something, and then she, she took out a piece of paper and she started reading, Dear Nikki, Every day I see the concepts we've learned in class come to life, but recently I saw a powerful example in my own life. I'm really working on not being blind to the forces and pressures behind these things anymore. People tend to not want to see these things, but for me, opening my eyes has been absolutely necessary. I took this class because a friend had recommended you and because I needed it for a gen ed. I could not have imagined how crucial the knowledge from this class would be. Last weekend, I was raped. 
He was an acquaintance. I was very drunk. Joe was not concerned with what I wanted or my well-being. Had he been, Joe, again a pseudonym, would have taken me serious, would have taken me seriously when I repeatedly told him no. Joe would have stopped when I said I had only had sex with one guy who I was deeply in love with. He would have respected when I told him I have morals. He would have listened when I said I just wanted to go to sleep. Joe wouldn't have told me my only other options were to swallow or for him to come on my face. He would have at least driven me home in the morning. As you can imagine, this has completely changed my life. It's difficult to imagine a time when this will be a distant memory. I will always have this emotional scar, but I am lucky my experience was not worse. Every day I pray that someday I'll say, it wasn't my fault and I'll believe it. I'm aware that this will be a long and difficult healing process. I'm thankful that I have this class to help me process what happened. And then she proceeds to talk about how she experienced feelings similar to the person before of blaming herself. Um, I even tried to make excuses for him. I don't think I will ever have all the answers. But your class has equipped me with some of them. I cringe thinking of him spanking me as I left in the morning as if I were a piece of meat. If I had just wanted to make out and nothing else, that would have been my right. Even though Joe didn't physically hurt me, I felt pressure to comply because of the fear of what he would have done. Joe kept saying that if I kept being so sexy, he would be forced to have sex with me. This statement alone shows Joe shifting blame off of him for what he was about to do. Joe managed to make it my fault. I was irresistible. I'm sure Joe doesn't think of himself as a rapist. I'm now so acutely aware of people throwing the word rape around. Also, your class reminds me that I'm not alone. There are people out there fighting to change things. Also, you know, in thinking about these letters, one thing I would like us to think about is what is the proper way to reply? What are the ethical ways for me to respond to this as an educator? There is no training for this, right? So as feminist educators who are trying to, you know, break down this ivory tower in a lot of ways and making real life material, um, you know, or blurring the boundaries between real life and class material in ways that are really important but oftentimes painful. How do we navigate that? And um, I'll just I'll just end there. Okay. Well, j just a couple of other points. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's really important that that you understand a lot of people who teach about social problems encounter students who contact them to talk about their real-life experiences with social problems. Um, so certainly, in, in talking about violence, this is not a unique example per se, but it's something that's really important to talk about because we, again, as educators, don't have training in how to handle this. Um, my own responses have been shaped by... I don't think I'm alone in, in being a feminist who was brought to feminism from, from my own personal experiences and then made sense out of my own personal experiences from feminism and found that very empowering. So, for example, being a witness of domestic violence when I was younger and then going into a women's studies major in college, you know, all of that was really, really important for me and shapes how I'm an educator and also led me to be a volunteer in a domestic violence shelter, which also helped provide me with some of the strategies to talk to my students when they do approach me with these issues. But again, I mean, not everybody who, who teaches about these issues necessarily has that training. Um, in a domestic violence shelter, and it, does that is that even enough training, or what would a training look like? You know, I mean, this is all really complicated, and and 
on an individual basis, but also really necessary for us to think about. Again, the blurring of the lines as painful blurring of the lines between class material and real life, but the importance of it. So I, too, am actually going to be uh, speaking about work in the classroom and in the classroom community in ways that are both similar to and different from the ways um, that Nikki has spoken about that. I begin this paper as I begin my classes with an open disclaimer. I am a radical feminist living a liberal feminist life. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This means that while I prefer to smash the patriarchy, I find myself instead working extra hours in order to pay my mortgage. While I don't believe the multiple systems of oppression in which we live our lives can ever be sufficiently salvaged, I spend my days teaching about oppression in a public university classroom, writing angry letters to the editors of various newspapers, (laughs) and marching in protests and presentations, all very liberal, fix-the-system type tactics. I begin all my classes by telling my students this as a heads up. I tell them I will be selling radical feminist ideas hard, but that I will temper them with gentler liberal feminist approach. And that I don't really care if they buy what I'm selling or not. I assure them it will not affect their grade at the end of the day if they agree or disagree with me that all I need from them is honest, thoughtful consideration of our course materials. In short, my job is to introduce them to these ideas, and their job is to think about them carefully and critically, period. But is this enough reassurance for my students? When I begin the semester by essentially stating, we live in a woman-hating, white supremacist, classist, ableist society, and I hate it, but you don't have to hate it. Is that enough? Is that even honest? Strangely enough, though, thus far it has generally been all right. This is not to say it's quickly all right or automatically all right or universally all right, but rather that my students and I, by and large, manage to work through our claims and discomforts together in ways that are often very productive for us all. But this is a dialectical process, one that takes all semester and sometimes beyond as students and I continue conversations outside of the boundaries of the academic calendar or find each other again in other courses. In this paper, I am attempting to reconceptualize teacher objectivity within the context of openly ideological, yet I hope reasonably representational, teaching. In many ways, teaching becomes associated with an interestingly positivist notion of objectivity that is assumed to be value-free. Yet as feminists have been arguing for a long time now, interest-free knowledge is logically impossible. If ideas of scientific neutrality and objectivity are not possible to fully achieve, how is it that we expect teaching a profoundly personal interaction in many ways to be objective? I would argue that this expectation, in fact, belies the inherently ideological and political nature of teaching, particularly but not certainly not solely teaching in the humanities and social sciences and possibly, but not necessarily even more so, teaching in women's, genders, and sexualities studies classrooms. This understanding has led me to a study of Sandra Harding's ideas of strong objectivity, which requires an open and transparent, reflexive examination of our own locations, including our biases, our desires, and our limitations. Yet because this strong objectivity works so differently from commonly held ideas about value neutrality, it can be misunderstood by teachers, by their parents, by colleagues, by administrators, et cetera, et cetera, by students. 
And I'm mindful as I think about this of David Horowitz's 2006 book, The 101 Most Dangerous Academics in America. I don't know if you all are familiar with that book. Although the book has been largely discredited by now for its own heavy polemics, as well as inaccuracies, its publication and the attention paid to it are really symptoms of broader cultural diseases with education and knowledge production. These diseases incorporate many issues, not the least of which are questions about the very purpose of education. Do we educate to build a nation of laborers or a nation of leaders or both? Do we educate to pay the bills first and expand the heart and soul second? How important is critical thinking anyway? I don't necessarily want to examine these meta questions today. I point out some of the tensions because the students in my classes are well aware of them, whether they themselves have consciously considered them or because they've come through a public education system that is marked by the budgetary and ideological schizophrenia of not having resolved these issues to any productive degree. Today, I want to talk about how, in the context of social and political expectations of education, which include these tensions and are informed by widely publicized critiques of left-leaning progressive teachers and or their pedagogical styles, feminist teachers can live their feminism in the classroom in ways that are productive for both teachers and students. Because I simply am not an objective teacher. Don't get me wrong, I'm a teacher by training, trade, and practice, and I understand the importance of the skills aspect of teaching. Learning, applying, and testing theoretical models, improving communication skills, achieving intellectual objectives. But because I am also a feminist sociologist by training, trade, and practice, the delivery of these skills is infused with a critical examination of our society. And while I work hard to invite and encourage the voices of all of my students, I also include my own voice in our conversations. I don't think I need to be completely silent in order for them to be heard. And in fact, sometimes it's my voice that gives voice to students in the classroom. Most of my students respond very well to this approach, thanking me for my passion and my commitment to them and to the issues we discuss. But what of the students who may feel silenced or marginalized in my classroom because my outspoken and I hope articulate examinations of social justice, examinations which I would argue very much do belong in my classroom, challenge them too quickly, too soon, or too much. Nikki mentioned briefly the importance of inviting people in who are already privileged in certain contexts, but who we want to have become a part of our work, right? We don't want to reject them and shut them out of the work. We want to invite them into that work and the difficulty of, of doing that in a classroom. Given the high number of students who respond positively to my attempts to be transparent in my personal beliefs, I'd like to believe that these silenced students are few and far between, but if they're silenced, how would I know? And even... And if even one of them is marginalized in my classroom, even one, because, um, because they feel my politics keep them out of the conversation, am I failing as a feminist teacher? Is it worth marginalizing one, two, five, if the central political and social space they formerly occupied can be shifted to create room for previously marginalized students? And I'm going to argue, perhaps contentiously, that it is worth it. Um, I'm increasingly well-known to students on my campus, not only as a feminist, but as an outspoken advocate for LGBT rights. And um, I want to give you one brief example before I close about how this kind of open politics in the classroom can work and, and can perhaps fail to work. Last year, I had the opportunity to appear on national television not once but twice to discuss my experiences raising a transgender child. 
At the time, I was teaching three introductory level gender theory classes. Many of the students in the classes had some idea of, of transgender, gender theory, LGBT issues, and many did not. And so they had come to this class as introductory students. Um, we had already talked about some of these issues, but I had not come out myself as, as a queer mother, as the mother of a transgender child. Some of these students saw me on TV. Some of them heard I was on TV. Many of them emailed to ask me about it, and I encouraged them to bring it up in the classroom. Um, but they didn't, and so eventually it was I who brought it up in the classroom because it began to feel like that elephant in the room, you know. Um, and so I told my students in all three of these classes what it was like um, to be raising a young transgender child, how we figured it out, how we were struggling to understand it and support her, our fears and our anxieties for the future, and I cried. Now, many students responded really positively to this. They thanked me. They told me um, I had made things real for them. Students came out to me after this class and told me that I had made the space feel safer for them. And many students seemed to kind of withdraw. And I wondered at the time, is this because my very visible personal reality has, has shut you out of this conversation now somehow? Because if you're not there with me, if a student is not there politically, right, with their instructor, do they feel like, well, I can't talk now because she's the one with the power. She's the one with the authority. She's the one who's going to put a grade after my name, right? And so these are some of the things that I struggle with as an, an open feminist in my classroom and as a feminist who is openly ideological at times. And these are things that I think my students struggle with and that I think feminist educators need to not land on an answer for, but rather continue um, to sort of cook together, continue to consider together. So I'll end there because I don't want to take up any of the next speaker's time, but thank you very much. So, um, um, I want to thank very much um, the Barnard Center for Research on Women, all the conference organizers, the staff, and Nancy Naples um, for having me on this panel. Um, I've, always, it's, I've always had um, felt very honored to be referred to as an activist research, researcher, um, but also very uncomfortable because I feel um, that it's a designation and it's something I want to worry about a little bit. I mean, I, I appreciate the gesture at the beginning. Let's, let's deconstruct some of these and challenge, and hopefully we'll have room to do that in, with everybody in the room because I personally know there's a lot of folks, and the folks that I know are all very deeply engaged here and have a lot to say about it too. Um, um, but I always feel like it over, uh, that it, it it almost erases the job of the people that I consider almost the real political organizers who are organizing me into their movements. And it's my participation in those movements that is shaping my scholarship, my teaching, my worldview, my social theory. And so I want to, I wanna, you know, put back that, that agency and that authorship where I feel like it really belongs and um, focus less on me as the activist researcher and what I'm learning by participating in social movements and in turn how I've tried to share what, uh, experiment with different ways of sharing that with my students too. So, um, um, so a, uh, my own research comes out of my participation, dates back to um, 1990 when I was a community organizer in San Francisco's Mission District and I, came to, I began to work with a nation immigrant women's group as a collaborator and ally, not a member. Um, uh, it's called Mujeres Unidas y Activas. At the time, it had 15 members. Now it's over 500 members. It's got two offices, one in San Francisco, one in Oakland. It's also um, one of the three founding organizations of the National Alliance of Domestic Workers. How many people here were here for iGen's talk yesterday at the plenary? Okay, great. So, so Mujeres Unidas, this group, is one of the um, founding organizations and leading organizations in that, that movement. Um, so um, for me, um, it was that relationship with that organization, watching it grow, being organized as an ally um, in the community, 
that shaped my first uh, re- my first research trajectory as as a doctoral student when I went back to school in cultural anthropology, and I asked them if I could work with them on my research. And it was in that process of thinking that I was going to do my research on one topic and then being sort of dragged down various other, um, not quite against my will, but certainly against the will of my committee and various other advisors and also major intellectual trends in my field that were not interested in the questions that people were forcing me to deal with, that I ended up focusing on what I did in my dissertation and ultimately the book that I wrote about them, and um, which focuses a lot on the questions of citizenship as a dynamic, disputed process, a never-ending struggle. And um, and I think that, and also the um, the the dual mission of this organization and their approach to uh, claiming citizenship, uh, which is personal transformation and and civic engagement, and that those two processes can be very intimate and very personal and also collective and absolutely political. And so... um, which sounds like you know personal and political and yet the second wave, but a, a very different model for talking about personal transformation and transformational politics than I had ever experienced in sort of the liberal American political tradition, and that I see coming a lot out of um, Latin American feminist organizing too. So, um, so that experience obviously changed my research. It um, I, sh- I share authorship in my own theories about citizenship with my collaborators and 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 also subsequent community organizations um, that I've participated in. I wonder, you know, is it because I study citizenship? Is that is that why I have this um, constant tension about being an activist research, being called an activist researcher, or, or people saying you're an activist scholar? Is it that um, that that discomfort is a healthy thing? I think um, you, somebody said, was it um, Jen- Jennifer, that you always feel like a failure? Like actually, I don't I don't know that if, if we're failing or it's just that we need to carry with us this tension, this sense that there's more that we could do, that we need to move forward, that we need to develop, and the work is never done because we know that in the communities of struggle, the work is never done, and it's a privilege and an honor that they give us to participate and learn from them and try to share it with other people. Um, so. So today I just wanted to tell you, I wanted to continue to worry. I'm a worrier. Um, And um, share some productive, uh, hopefully we'll come to some productive critiques um, and and different ways of thinking. But the example that I wanted to use is the example of the California um, campaign for the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, which, as Ijin explained, is the second sort of rolling out of the national process of of finally ending the exclusion of domestic workers as well as other excluded workers from the from formal legal recognition and protection, and I wanted to say what I think um, intellectually and politically, politically and you know in in terms of citizenship studies, this movement is doing, and then I want to reflect on very 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 briefly just sort of gesture to this class that I taught, and we can talk if there's time in Q and A more about the class itself because I think there's some been already some great feminist pedagogy um, examples. But um, so the, the, the campaign, I think, of the National Alliance and in, in California is really politically significant because it's demanding rights and recognitions from workers historically excluded from labor protections and full citizenship because their work has been done by women, because of the legacy of slavery in particular, but also because they are p- persons that the media and political forces um, try to configure as people without rights, aliens, illegals, non-persons, the whole thing. Their method, this is the the second big contribution I think they're making, the method is transformative. 
the method of organizing, the way they think and talk. You saw this with Ai-jen yesterday, right? You saw this in the video, and you saw her response about the siloing of, 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 of politics and, and how we can't move forward when we, if we continue to keep our issues in different silos. Um, the transformations of our sense of self and our political rights can only be understood in the context of intersectionality and the mutually constitutive systems of power and equality that we encounter as women with different positions of class, race, immigration, physical ability, disability, and sexuality. They, they're challenging workers and employers alike. This is what I think is really interesting about this movement, too. Um, to rethink our feelings and ideas about domestic work and care work in ways that deeply disrupt entrenched racist, sexist, and ableist notions of citizenship. And this leads to my final point, that their political goals include obtaining rights and recognition in law, but they insist that legal solutions will be unenforceable without changing our deepest beliefs about the value of care work and household labor and the women who do this work, including those of us who do it for our own families without pay. So um, there's three, I think, three, for three framing themes that um, the students in my class that I'll talk about, um, and I have seen emerging in recent interviews that we did with um, about 15 household workers and a smaller number of justice-minded employers and activists in California. These themes include the demand for recognition and respect, but also that those of us that hear the demands, thank you, that we re-examine basic U.S. cultural assumptions about citizenship and begin to think in terms of care versus competition and solidarity versus sympathy. Okay? They want recognition of domestic work and respect for the domestic workers doing it. They don't want people to be embarrassed about employing domestic workers. They want to make this work visible, and they want, and, and they want to be treated with respect. The work is not undignified. It's the treatment that's undignified. Um, and, they're, and they're saying we need to invert an ideology of citizenship that says to be independent is to, be, that, to need no help, right? And, and that to succeed in the society, you have to compete. It's not about caring. They're saying, no, it's about caring, not competition. It's about solidarity. And, um, and, um, and it's about interdependence, not independence. All right? So there's just a final thing is I'll say that, you know, just 30-second gesture. So in one of my myriad, you know, I'm on the board of the organization. I drive to what, how do I give back, right? I interpret. I um, write op-eds <laughs> um, that don't get published. Um, <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I give testimony in Sacramento. I, I just, I'll do whatever they tell me. They say, we need you to testify as an employer. I'll do it. We need you to testify as a, as a professor. I'll do it. Whatever it is, I, you know, I'll respond. I, I'll, I'll be organized, and I'll do what's asked of me. But um, one thing I wanted to do is what, what would happen if I brought students in? So I taught a class where the students participated in the earliest parts of this movement. And it worked really well in a lot of ways, but as in, is in, as in any of these kind of endeavors, it's a 10-week quarter. The, movement didn't, the, you know, the campaign didn't get rolling till the end of January. You know, the, the rhythm, it was, you know, the, there was a campaign rhythm. There was a student rhythm. There was the demands of the academic, sort of what, what am I supposed to really be teaching them? And then, and then there was also this constant sense, like we're not doing enough. We didn't collect enough stories. They weren't the right kind of stories. They weren't in the right format. And, and so then the, the work spun out over the spring and summer. But fortunately, a lot of the students stayed engaged, and they continued to do legislative research for the campaign. And f there's no question in my mind that for the 14 students and for me, and most of the 14 students were themselves children of domestic workers, I should say, um, it was a transformative experience. Now, what we did for the movement, uh, you know, long term, it was those 14 people's commitment. 
but um, in the short term, the work that we could accomplish was very little. So I have, I have again, that's it.